Bonjour and Bienvenue to Battle Royale, where we are passing judgment on all of the kings and emperors of France from Clovis to Napoleon III. Who will be selected as the creme de la creme and who will be sent to the guillotine? Je m'appelle Ben Clark. And I'm Eliza Summers. And today we are joined by a very special guest, Dr. R.D. Kramer, otherwise known as Rutger Kramer. Um, he is a scholar of early medieval political and ecclesiastical history and a teacher of ancient and medieval history at uh, Radboud University. I'm now officially in Utrecht, which is a very recent development. Oh, you're in Utrecht. Okay, that's all right. Uh, he's mainly focused on the high point of the Carolingian period, so Charlemagne and Louis the Pious. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we thought it would be a great idea to have him on board because he's been very helpful with the podcast and helping to get me sources. And mm-hmm. yeah, we just wanted to do a little retrospective of the Carolingian period now that we've officially finished it. So welcome, Rutger. So we'll start at the beginning of the Carolingian period with mm-hmm. Carolus Martellus, the namesake of the Carolingians. So Charles Martel. Eliza, what do you remember about Charles Martel? <laughs> I can't help but and well anytime I hear the word Martel I just think Game of Thrones. But um he was good. Yeah, he was. Good. <laughs> I don't remember anything. So okay? we, he was he he wasn't a king, um obviously. Yeah, he yeah, was he was the, the like a what was it like the minister or something like the, the mayor of the palace. Yes, the mayor of the palace. Remember and, that much. Um his big like defining moment uh, that we talked about was the Battle of Tours, um, which is oh, the yeah. ba- when the um, Islamic invasion, well, it, it's controversial whether it was an invasion or not, but um, I thought Rutger could maybe shed some light on whether that big battle, which is sort of drawn upon by later crusaders as a big defining moment in Christian history, whether that's been overblown or, you know, whether we should really treat it as Charles Martel's claim to fame or if there's more to Charles Mattel. Well, I mean, we, we, we can easily spend the entire episode just talking about <laughs> yeah. the, the Battle of Tours or Poitiers uh, and its legacy. Uh, I think uh, um, just to, to, to kick things off, like we will be talking about memory, creation of memory a lot uh, mm-hmm. because that's, that's basically what, yeah. what you're doing. That's what we're doing. That's what I study as yeah. well. Yeah. Um, so... Just to start things off on, let's say the uh, the mo- from a modern angle, I think this battle is indeed the defining moment of Charles Martel's reign for the simple fact that it has been made into the defining moment of the reign of Charles Martel. And by reign, I obviously mean he was sort of in Game of Thrones terms, the hand of the king <laughs> rather than the king. Yes, yes. Uh, you you see what I'm. Yeah, he was running the show. Yeah, so in that sense, what we're dealing with in the uh, when we're looking at the reputation of this battle rather than the reputation of Charles Martel, we're dealing mm-hmm. with like 1,200 years of history in the making, uh, uses yeah. and abuses of history, where this battle becomes maybe bigger than it. Yes, for, for two reasons. One, of course, it was a legitimate claim to fame of Charles Martel's, like just yeah. beating any invading army is good for your <laughs> reputation. But secondly, it's in the sources, 
even in the earliest ones, they do kind of make a big deal of the this the fact that they are Saracens, so they're not the regular invaders, they're new invaders. Mm. One thing the sources do not do, the contemporary sources, is make a big deal out of their religion. It's the fact that they're newcomers onto the Western mm -hmm. European scene. That's the big deal. Obviously, their religion is mentioned, so once the Crusades are happening, they're like, when did this start? They go back to the sources yeah. and they reach Fredegar. They need it to support them. Like, yes. justify, justify things. things. So yes. they mm. fit it to meet their criteria. And we did we did touch on in, I think, either Charlemagne or Louis the Pious, when one of them is fighting in the Spanish March, we did talk about how that's later sort of reinterpreted as the start of the sort of Reconquista, which is where the Christians are getting Spain back from the uh, the, the Muslims. It, and it's the same thing uh, from like a Carolingian perspective. So going back to like the time of Charles Martel, raiding across the border was basically what you did as a ruler, regardless of your ethnicity or your faith. <laughs> like yeah. that's that's what yeah. you did. In historical terms, this was most probably just a raid that went a yeah. bit too far north for comfort. I mean, the Saracens were there, uh, were in yeah. southern Aquitaine. They had been for some time, like they had been a legit presence in mm. the Iberian Peninsula. So, But they were raiders and they were beaten back. So in that sense, it probably wasn't the big battle for the fate of Europe that it was. It was the battle that... Uh, allowed Charles Martel and sort of the, the Carolingian loyalists to say, okay, we're protecting Equité now. So mm. this was part of yeah. the propaganda war over who got to rule Equité, a local ruler mm. or the Carolingians. The same, in a way, goes for this incursions into the Iberian Peninsula. In a way, you can actually see that as the Carolingians being like the Saracens were in the 740s. They're just yeah. raiding into enemy territory see if they can hang on to it. It's being mm. presented as border protection, but I mean, that's still a modern thing. Hi, we're invading this country to protect our borders. I mean, stop me if you <laughs> heard that before. But they're sort, of, they're sort of using it as an excuse to go in there and meddle around with things. Yes, but here's the big difference between the contemporary sources and how it's been used later. Like in the eighth and ninth century source material, their faith is mentioned, but it's not the reason for attacking them. Mm, yeah. And it becomes that later on when mm. we are in crusader times, when we are, I mean, it's still a thing. Like the, the, the battle of Poitiers is still being used by the French uh, extreme right politicians as sort of a, look, we've been fighting Islam for forever. And it's like, yeah. first of all, we is not the right way of looking mm. at it. And secondly, that wasn't the point of that battle. The point was to protect harvest, to protect the harvest. The point was to protect your wealth, to protect your cities, not to protect the faith. Must have been on the minds of some people. At, at some point, like once you start zooming in, you can, of course, take every eventuality into account. But the contemporary source material framed this as a protection of Franks and the, the, uh, the mind... Sorry, can I say that? <laughs> we'll believe it, it's fine. Okay, <laughs> so the monologue that's going on is that they're protecting the Franks, but they are actually protecting people who at that point might not have identified as Franks. Uh, so it's part of this, well, but 
we are supposed to do this because you are our subjects. And the people in Septimania and Aquitaine would, would probably have... They're like, we are? Who are you? But th thanks for protecting us, but what? Like, when did we become your subjects? Yeah. And then the Carolingians would say, well, you have been Frankish subjects ever since the time of Clovis. And now we're in this sort of yeah. weird debate about what land possession and ruling over territories actually meant in the early yeah. Middle Ages. There have been a few occasions in the podcast where I've been sort of like retelling the history or, or, re or researching the history or like trying to write the episode and I'll stumble upon a reference to Aquitaine or Lotharingia or some kind of border territory and I'll, I'll be like, wait, do they own that now or have they lost that? Are they trying to get it back? I'm confused. <laughs> but the reality is obviously... It, they, people don't define things as rigidly as that, I guess. Yeah. Well, one thing to definitely keep in mind is that, let's say, pre-modern, pre-absolutist rulers, they don't own land. So kings have landed possessions, their familial wealth, which for the Carolingians was basically around Aachen, Flanders, like Dutch Limburg, basically in that, that general area, that's what they owned Everything else was controlling the loyalty of the people who owned the land in various other regions. And again, the Battle of Poitiers, like the most important thing they did there was shown, look, Charles Martel, successful military ruler, if you give him your loyalty, he'll help you protect your ownership of your land. Mm -hmm. And so um, don't think of it until, let's say, I'm not putting a year on this, but let's say until the 16th century, don't think of it as land ownership. Think of it as mm. owning the loyalty of people. Yeah. That, I think that's a very helpful way of, of understanding Looking that. At yeah. it. And to go full circle, this is how they used, how the Carolingians or the Carolingian loyalists used that particular battle. Most of the other battles Charles Martel fought were against other Franks. So they are not really conducive to getting the loyalty of Frankish people. Just sweep yeah. that under the rug. Yep. <laughs> and, then of, and then, of course, you have a similar thing with Pepin the Short going into Italy and sort of defending the Pope from the, the Lombards, and, and sort of that wins him the Pope's sort of respect, loyalty, whatever you want to call it, and is one of the reasons he becomes king. And Charlemagne as well. Like, he ends up conquering, yeah. conquering the Lombards, and again, we have to... Yeah. It's not quite clear what happened there, but he conquers the Lombard kingdom to protect the Pope. <laughs> Officially, yeah, even though Pepin kind of already did it. Yeah. Not sure. So that brings us to the next question. It's a great segue about Pepin the Short and Charlemagne. And we've had a, a, a couple occasions in the podcast where Eliza's forgotten who Pepin the Short is. I've had to remind her that it's Charlemagne's dad and that a lot of the things that we may credit to Charlemagne are perhaps things that we should credit Pepin the Short with, or at least we should uh, consider his contribution to setting Charlemagne up. Do you think that Charlemagne has sort of stolen Pepin's thunder in a way? <laughs> wow. Well, Charlemagne is always the odd one out, so in a way. I mean, just look at the scores you've given all these early kings. Like, they've been sort of... <laughs> yeah mediocre at best and then Charlemagne gets an 8 out of 10 and that's that's a reflection of the historical record but to some extent it's really also a reflection of the fact that he was a very important person right place right time um, so I wouldn't go as far as saying that Charles stole his father's thunder 
but but it helped contribute definitely like when i say charles charlemagne was at the right place at the right time we should mm-hmm. really give pippin credit for creating yeah. that place and time the age-old sort of standing on the shoulders of giants this is maybe more like a giant standing on the shoulders of a slightly smaller person <laughs> In a way, that metaphor works, because as you said, Pepin is kind of crushed by Charlemagne's reputation. So in a way, it is Mm. a giant standing on the shoulders of a mere mortal. That said, I think the one thing that is absolutely crucial, which uh, Pepin does not get enough credit for, almost paradoxically, is this link with Rome, with the papacy. The Mm. brilliance of doing the thing where he asks the Pope, hey, shouldn't I rule? Like to avoid a civil war, to not make this yet another military thing, but to get a little bit of ecclesiastical backing, whether it's in the historiographical record or in reality, (laughs) this will be a recurring theme. But the fact that that's how how it's being recorded. If that had not happened, I think the time and place that Charlemagne ended up in would have been different. He'd have much more mm. infighting and the yeah. succession would not be as clear as it was because mm. Pepin was the one who got the Pope on his side. And he and he did that by sort of, uh, he sort of lawyered up and he got a really good PR team around him because he, he assembled all of these scholars to come up with like, what's the perfect question we can ask the Pope to make him, make us king? And, uh, I guess Charlemagne also took that idea and ran with it um, with his whole group of scholars that he employed. Yes, uh, that that's a very important point that you raise. It wasn't Pepin, of course. I keep alternating between Pepin and Pippin because I don't care. <laughs> but uh... I think I I think I I put a poll on Twitter or something when I started researching Pepin, and I said, "Do you want us to say Pepin or Pippin?" and Pepin won. So it was a bit arbitrary. <laughs> you know, when you think Pippin, you just think Lord of the Rings. Yeah, and it was just like the the five listeners who were listening to us at the time who said that. But um, makes you think, does a pep in your step is Pippin? I just decided I'll choose. I'll choose one. I'll just run with that for all of my notes because otherwise it'll be a mess. If anything, if if someone in that family had a pep in her step, it was his uh, wife Berta with the big feet. Um, Oh, yes. Why is she called uh, Bertrada Broadfoot, is it? I, I never figured that out. Because they're <laughs> hobbits? I, I, don't, I don't know. <laughs> yes, that's why they're hobbits. That's a new fact. We've established that now. Good. No, but uh, <laughs> to go back to uh, <laughs> another thing that Pepin does right and which he teaches his offspring is the cooperation angle. Fighting your mm. battles yeah. inside the halls of the palace rather than on the battlefield, getting people on your side before a fight breaks out. You're absolutely Mm. right in saying Pepin would have asked his people, how shall we do this? What should we ask the Pope? Mm. Like he treated it like a riddle that needed solving. And I think as, as violent as Charlemagne ended up being, internally, he really looked at the way his dad solved that particular issue and went with it so again you need a stage to be set and Pepin definitely set the stage for Charlemagne to become Charlemagne finally got that last Merovingian king knocked off 
Yeah. And haircuts. Yeah. And I, I, that that's a whole a whole other story. Like, um, <laughs> this is where you start seeing the PR machine as well, like convincing. Uh, so it, on the one hand, it's getting the Pope, getting ecclesiastical backing. On the other hand, everything we know about the do-nothing kings is Carolingian, the Carolingian PR machine at work. Like from mm. the other sources we have, we see that they did a lot of things. <clears throat> these Merovingian kings were not completely toothless. Obviously, they were overshadowed by the mayors of the palace, but the extent mm. to which they were overshadowed may have been exaggerated in the subsequent sources. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Yeah. And that's the, the last, this trend of using historiography, using narratives mm. to create your own myth. Again, yeah. Pepin walked so Charlemagne could run. So throughout history, no matter what, like, empire, they always, like, use other people's stuff. And, like, the later rules will use that for, like, justifying or even take it as their own and saying they did it. To make themselves seem better. Like, Ramses II did that all the time in Egypt. <laughs> yes. And we've, we've seen the exact same thing that happened to the Merovingians just happened to the, the Carolingians, who've just been taken over by Hugh Cape in our podcast, albeit in a maybe shorter span of time. Because um, it's really just Louis V who's called the do-nothing king in the Carolingian dynasty. But you can see after he's deposed, there are still quite a few people who are on the Car- Carolingian side who haven't been erased like the Merovingians maybe were. Um, whereas there is this other propaganda machine starting up as well to sort of defame Louis. And we didn't put, I, I think we didn't put as much stock in the whole Louis V being, uh, you know, uh, debauched and lazy and all that sort of thing because it came from such later things and because we weren't seeing the contemporary sources back that up. It's a very tried and true method of, of, of not so much. So the point of that is not to discredit your predecessors. It's to make yeah. the Easy. current rulers look good. Or justify them. Rolling. Yes. And, and the interesting thing here is how much, how important this dynastic change versus, let's call it, national or ethnic continuity is. Like, they were still Franks in a way, mm. even though by now you can probably start calling it France. But, I mean, the underlying people are the same. So mm-hmm. it's really a rulership discourse. Mm. It's really about justifying changing one one ruling family for the next. Not much changed on the ground, which is why they got away with it. (laughs) The same people would be um, like on the second and third levels of power thinking, oh yeah, yeah, that guy, he was like quite ineffectual. Our current person to whom we owe our loyalty now. Yeah, yeah. Great. And then everyone under that would not have cared that much. And uh, speaking of that phenomenon of the last person just getting steamrolled by the sources, we've got Carloman the First, who was Charlemagne's brother, getting pretty much the the opposite scores of Charlemagne in every category because he'd well he hadn't reigned for that long. First of all, and his brother Charlemagne, yeah, and also he'd just been sort of erased almost, even in the Enchanté category. I couldn't find a single image of him. And the image that I actually found ended up being wrong 
It ended up being Carlin the second is the image I found. Tell us what happened there. <laughs> is it the same sort of phenomenon you're describing of, you know, let's bury this person? Yeah, so one one thing is uh, is, is obvious. It's, again, not so much about Carlman, but it's about discrediting his group of loyalists. And by discredit, I mean basically put them into a corner because they end up, we know the people who were part of the, Carloman party actually ended up swearing loyalty to Char- Charlemagne mm. relatively soon, which shows that it was really more bluffing than anything else. About survival, I guess, for them. On the one hand, it's survival, but to make Carloman into a non-entity actually defuses that particular situation. There's no conflicting loyalties because yeah. <laughs> who's, who's, there was never, I never had a brother, basically. I mean, I'm exaggerating a bit, but to make him less important gives his followers a way out. And again, this is all in the record. This is all after a generation. After the dust has settled, people look around and think, how are we going to sell this? And in that sense, for example, whether or not he was murdered or whether he died from a nosebleed or whether he just randomly died from a toothache, because you could die from anything anything yeah people would have died at convenient times relative often and what happened to his wife and his children that's also another they're not important anymore if historiographers thought it's important to show that they lived happily ever after they would have written it if it was important to emphasize that they were murdered they would have written it but they don't they don't at all which means they're no longer an issue they're just yeah. They're not in the spotlight. Yeah, and it's not a, it's not damnatio memoriae. It's not like so uh, erasing some actively erasing some run from history. It's just they're no longer worth commenting upon in the news. In the sa- same way that that in let's say in American politics, hardly anyone outside of the U.S talks about Mitt Romney anymore. He's just, it's not like he's disappeared. It's just that <laughs> in Europe, we don't care about him anymore. So he's not in the news. Well, Yeah. When he's brought up, it's always to be like, remember when we, we thought he was bad? Well, there, there's an important point there because uh, I'm not saying that he wasn't convenient, like his death wasn't convenient. I'm not saying he wasn't murdered. I'm just saying the sources make it a point to not make it a point. And yeah, yeah. we know this because, for example... All the Aquitanian rulers, all the Lombard rulers, they all conveniently fall off their horses. They all conveniently get murdered by their own followers. Like, it's very important for the Carolingians to show that they are never the ones doing the king killing. They are always the ones basically being merciful and they're the ones restoring order. Look, this Lombard king couldn't even keep his own people from killing him, but now they are our subjects and order has been restored. And the Lombard king has been sent far away. (laughs) Yeah, and then he fell off his horse. What can you do? That's how that works, yeah. Whoops, yeah. Many of the sources are written, let's say, a generation afterwards. They only start writing once the new order has been settled. So it's a lot, a lot of it is more about justification of the current political climate and less about creating that political climate. We don't know how that happened. We just know that 10 years later, this is the narrative they chose. Interesting. Speaking of, you know, things being written down a generation later, I'm, I'm trying hard with my segues here. 
Uh, <laughs> a lot of Charlemagne's, you know, great magnificent reign was written down during Louis the Pious's uh, reign. So uh, scholars like Einhard um, were sort of commissioned or published, however, whatever you'd call it, in that period. This is when the Carolingian Renaissance really uh, has its full flowering, I guess. What can you tell us about what Louis the Pious contributed to that and maybe how that connects to his interest in the church? I think, first of all, it's, it's very important, uh, as, as you point out, to realise that like Charlemagne's reputation is obviously well-deserved and we can look at the charters and we can look at all the councils he organised and the wars he fought and the wars and the, the many, many people he killed on his way to becoming the great. So definitely let's not diminish his accomplishments, but his reputation was made during the reign of Louis the Pious. Whether yeah. or not Louis the Pious had an active hand in that or not is a topic of, of massive debate. Why did yeah. Einhard write the Vita Caroli? There's roughly speaking two camps. One says he wrote it very early, shortly after the death of Charlemagne, as a way of glorifying the father of Louis the Pious, which in a way would be at the behest of the new king. The other school said, no, it's written very late, like in the late 820s, and basically as sort of a outsider's perspective on how to be a perfect ruler as a way to criticize Louis the Pious. So rather than saying, hey, your predecessors were do-nothing kings, it's like, look at what this guy did, and why aren't you... Doing that. Yeah. So either way, uh, and this we don't know. There's no real way of knowing the manuscripts do not allow us to go one way or the other. Some of my colleagues have strong feelings about this. I think maybe he started writing in 815 and continued editing until the 830s. We just don't know. Either way, it's written for the court of Louis the Pious. It's not written as Einhard's diary. It's not written as a hagiography. It's written as a mirror for the next generations of kings. And so take that as you will. And Einhard was a courtier of Louis the Pious until his death. So obviously he did something right or he did nothing wrong. So he must have touched uh, the right nerve. I mean, we do know that there were people who were thrown out of Louis the Pious's court. Upon the death of Charlemagne, he, he did shift gears in a lot of ways. Yeah, that, that's uh, segueing into the other aspect of... Yeah, yeah. Well, like, to give Eliza a bit of a refresher, at the beginning of Louis the Pious's reign, there was a bit of like a... Maybe purge is a strong word, but he... Um, uh, I, I think we accused him of getting rid of the fun. Um, where all of the concubines and everything that had been around during Charlemagne's reign, a lot of the, a lot of the, what we as a modern audience might consider the fun aspects of Charlemagne's court life were kind of, uh, stripped away a bit in favor of a more, um, simple, pious, hence Louis the Pious, uh, a lifestyle that was more God honoring. I prefer the devil worship. Let's not forget that Louis's oldest son was born while Louis was 14. So, I mean, he knew how to have fun in that, in that <laughs> sense of the word. Yeah, yeah. And he later gets in trouble for listening to his wife. So... But that's an um, absolute no-no in, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's some contradictions happening. Yeah, so uh, this is where, like, now we're at... The bit that I know most about, so I have to... Yeah, yeah, I understand. Yeah. 
So indeed, purge is a strong word. Some people have used it. Basically, I think in practice, it's a changing of the guard. Louis mm-hmm. uh, was, of course, the youngest son of Charlemagne, or the youngest legitimate son. Let's not go into that scandal. <laughs> um, the sources, even the sources glorifying Louis, do heavily imply that he was never intended to be the successor. So he was sort of shoved yeah. off to Aquitaine, which in my opinion is the better deal, but that's another thing. It seemed, he seemed to be having a really good time in Aquitaine. Yes, he had a super good time yeah. in Aquitaine. His father hardly ever visited. Actually, I think the closest he ever gets to Aquitaine once the sub-kingdom is created is Tour. Charlemagne just doesn't show up. He's being raised by the nobility there. And Charlemagne, of course, does shuffle around the loyalists in Aquitaine a a bit uh, without going into detail. Like he puts the right people in the right place to get Louis the education he needs. But Louis is essentially raised by Aquitanian nobility and Aquitanian ecclesiastical officials. Benedict of Aniana, my main man, being among them. Um, So in many, many, many ways... This purging of the palace, in uh, scare quotes, is not so much getting rid of Charlemagne's entourage. It's changing, saying he's comfortable with. Bringing your own people in. Yeah. Mm. Obviously, those people were less fun. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But that didn't mean they were less interesting. I think the big, um, what, what, what makes this stand out a bit in a negative way is that Charlemagne was actually uh, quite open to input from the women around him, his daughters, his Mm. sisters, and they were all gotten rid of. Not in a bad way, like they were given cushy jobs as abbesses, which wasn't as austere as we think it is now. Like they weren't out of the picture. They were the ones who wrote the documents, basically. Um, But yeah, they were definitely, um, they lost their access to what's called the king's ear. And because a large part of them were women and they were all replaced by men, yeah, obviously that's in modern in the modern sense of the word, something's going on there that we don't like as much anymore. Like there was no affirmative action here. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, and I do think, in a way, looking at it from a modern perspective, this will have made Louis's court less effective. I mean, diversity is simply good for business in a way. And Charlemagne yeah. was very good at getting like people from all over the realm, many different voices, including Jewish voices, uh, yeah. Muslim um, diplomacy, like that elephant came with an entourage. So, I mean, there, there was a lot of stuff going on at the court of Charlemagne, which was probably a bit more uniformized under Louis the Pious. I'll, I'll give you that. <laughs> I know a lot about him. I'm not a big fan. Let's put it this way. Um, but... In the end, it, it wasn't malicious. It was just, yeah. you need to be, a, if you want to be a king, if you want to get sort of the political part of the on guard score is making sure you are shielded from, yeah. from bad politics. And that's by yeah. getting your friends around you. Yeah. Uh, and Louis was very good at that. Um, a bit too good. <laughs> which leads to his downfall because he appoints people that the wider court did not agree with. Mm, so yeah. that, that's what's going on there. 
So to go to your the other part of your question, one thing that Einhard, for example, points out is Charlemagne recording Germanic folk songs, changing the names of the monks, mm-hmm. like he's trying to sort of be a man of the people. And then yeah. Louis the Pius's biographer actually says he got rid of all that again. So he was yeah. a bit of the anti-Charlemagne in that sense. Uh, and that you can also see in the remainder of his policies. Don't make too much of the anti-Charlemagne. Mm-hmm. But one article that I really liked when I started out doing this is uh, Louis de Pius and the Frontiers of the Frankish Realm. It's 30 years old by now by Tom Noble. One of the points he makes, which I think is absolutely uh, a very interesting one, is that Louis de Pius was very good at seeing that there was no territorial gains to be made. Like the conquest of Barcelona, like the realm was stretched to its absolute breaking point. But of course, in the medieval mindset, there is also the spiritual realm that you need to safeguard. So this article argues that Louis de Pius actually said, okay, the, the territorial, the geographic frontiers are more or less set. Let's now create a spiritual bulwark, spiritual wall around the church to make sure that everyone inside is safe not only materially military success obviously is making sure that the battles are not on your territory that's basically mm. i i think that's the major thing that let louis down in on guard was the internal stuff with his sons later in his reign and fully getting deposed at one point i think that's where he lost a lot of his score actually was just the fact that there were major civil wars that took up large parts of his reign although the big battle is actually after his death so he actually in a way like the fact that he got back into the saddle (laughs) shows that he did have a lot of supporters still you don't just become emperor because god says so i mean that's fine if the historiography tells us this but the fact that louis de pais was deposed twice got back in the saddle and actually got his sons back in the fold as well shows us that he was never as powerless as he's being made out to be. He will always have had a significant group supporting him. And partially that was because Louis de Pais was the first emperor in the West to succeed, which I do think is much, we should make a bigger deal of that. Charlemagne was the first emperor being crowned. Okay, fine. Hurrah for you. Louis de Pais was the first one who inherited the imperial. Yeah. And there were meant to be other sons inheriting it as, as well. And the fact that he was the youngest uh, and the fact that he could see... I mean, his kingdom was created to to ease the pressure of the realm, basically. And he knew yeah. all this. And he knew that it was like a house of cards. They were living inside a house of cards, which could fall yeah. apart at any moment. So the ideological, political and religious community needed to be strengthened and that's what louis de pius really tried to accomplish with his court with the people around him in order to also because of course a strong realm means strong borders and all that as well so that's why why the religious reforms under him were sort of kicked up a notch he built upon the momentum generated by his father, the same way that Charlemagne built an empire upon the momentum generated by Pippin. Louis created the church, the Frankish church, based on the momentum created by his father. This 
Carolingian Renaissance, which we don't really use in scholarly literature anymore, but it's a perfect shorthand for what's going on. Uh, and I think that's the major accomplishment of Louis the Pious. And talking up Charlemagne, allowing Einhard to basically make Charlemagne into kind of a saint is part of that. But also, at the same time, we see one of Einhard's friends write a scathing critique of Charlemagne. You mentioned the gnawing on uh, um, his uh, reproductive organs due to his yes. uh, sexual indisc <laughs> indiscretions and all that. That text is from the same group of people written around the same time to show like, hey, we can basically not have our cake and also be okay with not eating it. That's what they're doing. <laughs> The um uh the one of the biographies I read about Charlemagne actually opens with the ball gnawing story. I can't remember which one it was. I think it was um I think it was Friedrichs or something. Johannes uh, Fried, yeah. He's, uh, yes, there Johannes are two Fried, big yeah. biographies published almost simultaneously. Yeah, that's the first one I I I, I read. So yeah, first the first thing I learned about Charlemagne was <laughs> he had his he had his uh, genitalia chomped on in the afterlife. <laughs> But the fact that both those stories could exist simultaneously shows, in the end, that the image of rulership that, that was created under Louis the Pious was, they're only human. They're not gods. They're not gods, they're not saints. Uh, they are human beings, and despite being human, look at what he accomplished. It's a very mm. Old Testament ideal. A tournament is usually uh, equated with King David. Mm. He's not perfect. The, Old Test the books of the Old Testament do not make a secret of the fact that David and also Solomon were deeply, deeply flawed human beings who, despite yeah. their flaws, managed to create an empire. Mm. And that's what you see going on. And I do think we should give Louis credit for allowing that sort of rhetoric to mm. emerge. Um, even yeah. though, in the end, it ends up biting him in the ass because yeah. then people are like, well, if you're only human, you won't mind if we take over your power. And uh, and, and I think you've called this the um, the penitential state where, you know, the king is beholden to the clergy in that in that sort of way. Yes. So, yeah, the penitential state, uh, it's it's not my invention. It's my uh, one of my teachers, Michael de Jong, wrote a, a book on called The Penitential State. Mm -hmm. um, and it's very interesting and everyone should read it. The title is both referring to the states, like the Frankish state in a political mm -hmm. sense, but also the idea that at this elite level under Louis the Pious, people were conditioned into a state of constant penance. Again, taking the fun mm -hmm. out of politics. Yeah. <laughs> but I think what she shows very clearly is that this was a political tool. It wasn't meant to mm -hmm. affect the mentality of all the people all the time, but it was meant to keep the elites in check. Hey, you have a responsibility. You have people who rely on you to protect their crops, but also protect their souls. So make sure that you don't let it get to your head. Be penitential. Yeah. If you're in a position of power, you should be the first to show that you did things wrong. That's yeah. the rhetoric that you see emerge from the court of Louis the Pious. And I think in your podcast, you sort of make that too much of a sort of 
totalitarian thing that one that, that <laughs> was intended to affect the entirety of the realm, but it's really mm. uh, a way of keeping the elites in check. Beware, there is a higher power. And this idea, mm. which we first see emerge on the Charlemagne, but there was the idea that if you are a bishop or a count or a king or whoever, and you die and you get to the pearly gates, um, modern concept, but okay, St. Peter looks in his book and you have to reckon not only your own sins, but also the mm. sins committed by every single person for whom you were responsible in life. Mm, okay. Um, that is a big burden to carry. That is big. I could tell why Louis was getting a bit frayed at the edges towards the end there. It's like, oh, everything's going wrong. <laughs> yeah. I'm not getting to go through those gates. <laughs> and th this is what the original meaning of pious was uh, in his nickname. It's b basically being aware of your responsibilities, not just uh, materially, yeah. but also spiritually. Then it hmm. becomes sort of a... Uh, um, kind of a goody two-shoes, like it gets different connotations as time goes by. Mm. And obviously, I don't think Louis would be the most fun person to go out for drinks with, um, because he'd probably yeah. be drinking in his beer and thinking, oh, I should be, I should be doing administration. Yeah, we have to imagine many of Charlemagne's political decisions. Being there's made not as many records of <laughs> chilling in the bath uh, like Charlemagne. Yeah. And with Louis de Pius, <laughs> it was probably at a table looking very serious. Well, maybe afterwards. We don't know. Yeah. The record doesn't show this. Again, Einhard makes a point of telling us no, that Charlemagne did them. things differently. <laughs> it's not saying yeah. that Louis yeah. de Pius never had, went, fun. <laughs> never had fun. It's just that. His image was the he never once bared his white teeth in laughter. So, yeah, it's it's very complex. But you you cannot look at the the way Louis de Pius cultivates his own reputation without looking at mm. the way he had a hand in cultivating Charlemagne's reputation. Because mm. if Charlemagne was David, Louis was Solomon, and they make mm, yeah. a point of this in the literature as well in the contemporary sources. They were both fallible, but they were both fulfilling different functions in the making mm. of the Carolinian state. Is it weird that all I can imagine is that Louis finding something really fun is like blowing bubbles? And then, yeah, and then some bubbles. abbot would be standing yeah, behind them like saying, Donald these bubbles are a metaphor for like, the fragility like, of human life. Yeah. So yeah, I, I yeah. do think uh, I I I will not <laughs> yeah. lose this image. And then he's like, "You've taken the fun soon, out of it." Yeah. <laughs> Louis de Pius blowing bubbles. Enjoy. Yeah. Yes. Where those bubbles came from? Yeah. yeah. While Charlemagne's yeah. bubbles are in the bath. Yeah. He just has the little bubble <laughs> canister, Louis. Though he's like. Yeah. Yeah. Um. So yeah, obviously, uh, Louis has a much harder time because he's ruling also this gigantic place that was meant to be split up. Yeah. So how how should that then affect how we score later monarchs who only have to rule France and really are only responsible for pretty much just a, a portion of what we would call Northern France, not even really the whole thing most of the time. Um, 
which is how it sort of, what it transitions into during um, Charles the Bald's reign after Louis the Pious. Yeah, the, the, the hot water you land in is um, the, the, the question of ownership. I mean, technically, at some point in like the future of your podcast, France will be, really be like within a stone's throw of Paris, technically. Uh, yeah. But then there are a lot of people who call themselves French or Franks who are loyal to the king, who accept that there needs to be someone at the center of power. This is just part of medieval political thinking. You need someone at the top of the hierarchy. Defining who exactly, uh, what, what that means for what France is. If, let's say, a Duke of Lotharingia uh, one week says, oh, I'll pay my taxes to the King of France. And then the next week he pays his taxes to uh, the emperor, uh, like an Ottonian emperor. Does that make yeah. the entire territory of Lotharingia French or not? So this is something you will have to deal with. Yeah. And I, 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 see, I foresee that also becoming an issue when we get into the Capetian period, when we get to the period where the kings of England are also kind of subjects in the King of France in their, in their mainland territory, because we have the, the Angevin Empire. And just yeah. to wait until Canada comes into the picture. Oh, dear. <laughs> no, but one difference that you, that you see, which makes things uh, maybe a bit easier, even though it's diff more difficult to define, Like once we are sort of from, let's say, the 11th century onwards, the people who are loyal, the people who, who we would consider to be part of the French kingdom are part mm -hmm. of the French kingdom because they choose to do so. Everyone mm -hmm. would have had the option, depending on how strong the king is, would have had the option of saying, no, I'm not going to. Look at Equité, mm -hmm. yeah. look at the Angevin Empire, like you can fight over this. Like, do I owe loyalty to the king? Louis the Pious and Charlemagne's courts, Charles the Bold as well, like they ruled over and Charles the Fat as well, like the, the ones who did the entire empire. It was like a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-religious in some ways conglomerate of people that you needed to convince to stay with you. So the dynamics are different. I think especially, again, Louis the Pious being the youngest son who only two years before he became emperor knew that he would become emperor. Mm. He didn't know when Charlemagne was going to die, but uh, like for him, it would have been a completely different dynamic that he was getting into from the court of Aquitaine, where everyone mm. speaks roughly. I mean, there are several languages going on, but everyone speaks the same language. It's the same discourse. Suddenly, he's also responsible for the Lombard kingdom, for Saxony, for Dalmatia, for like yeah. negotiating with the Danish kings, uh, negotiating with England. Um, that's a completely different dynamic. And that becomes mm. less complicated once France becomes France rather than the mm. Frankish Empire. Until you get a different form of empire building, but that's... Yeah, a while away. A while away. We have time to figure it out. <laughs> um, yeah. These are these are always things that we try to consider when we're passing judgment on the kings, because every king has a different context, even from generation to generation. Like comparing Louis the Pious's circumstances versus Charles the Bald's circumstances. Like, for instance, he doesn't have this huge empire to run, or doesn't have as huge an empire to run, but he has the Vikings. Uh, so it's kind of like sometimes it's a trade-off. Mm. Um, and uh, 
it's it's hard to compare them on that basis, which is why the at mm. the end of the day, we're really just comparing how interesting they are. <laughs> we're not comparing <laughs> who's the best because there's no way to qualify that. That's impossible. But, but that's really that that's that that's what I do too. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> because in the end, like thinking of ruling at that time, uh, the the size of the territory doesn't really matter that much. It's just. Um, because in the end, you have to make do with the people you've put in positions of power, mm. like uh, your representatives, and the culture yeah. they bring to your court. So again, yeah. it's about like working within one discourse community, or if, if that term makes sense, like within mm. one group of people who all talk about things in the same way, versus mm. having to adjust like, oh my God, now, the, now there's Byzantines. Oh, now these guys speak, who's this? Like the, the famous example <laughs> is the negotiation between Louis the Pies and the Danish king, where Louis uh, gets them to negotiate, like he negotiates a peace treaty and actually gets the Danish uh, ruler or whoever, I forget who it was, to convert to Christianity. So it gets mm. baptized, Louis becomes his godfather. Um, what's this Charles the Bull? We'll fix that in post. I think it was really <laughs> Big party is thrown. Viking is now Viking ruler is now Christian and hooray, peace has been brokered. Then a year later, that yeah. Viking shows up with his army and says, Hey, um, I want another hey. baptism. I like the party. Like I need a new set of white robes. Could you please baptize me again? The point of this story, uh, the way it's being told, obviously it's ridiculous. Obviously it's to show that, look, these Northmen have a long way to go before they are actually Christian. But also it's to show the difficulties of like cross-cultural diplomacy, even between mm, yeah. the Frankish realm and the Danish realm, which which were not that far apart. But even there, there was a mm. huge gulf uh, yeah. of communication between the two. Um, and... Let's say Charles the Bold had, uh, for him, it was less of an issue because he could afford to just say Vikings equals bad because he, he shared no border with them to him. They were just raiders. And Charles the Simple, for example, uh, had to, <laughs> had a different dynamic again because now they were his neighbors again, these same mm. Vikings. And, uh, obviously the nature of the podcast doesn't show how often <laughs> I do scare quotes. <laughs> well, Charles kind of, uh, Charles is simple, almost sort of solved the problem in a way. Um, obviously it's arguable. There were still Vikings raiding in other places, but yeah, he, if you remember Eliza, he was the one who gave Normandy to the Vikings and sort of, that's how the Normans are. Oh, is that the one there's Rollo? Yes, it was Rollo. Yeah. Okay, I only remember that because I remember it as the chocolate. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, Rollo chocolate, it's good. <laughs> and it's sticky, just like the Normans. Yes, they were very sticky. But yeah, so um, and I think I think Odo also dealt a bit with trying to convert Vikings, and um, there was one instance where one of them got baptized, but then one of Odo's men stabbed him, and Odo's like, "Why'd you just do that?" <laughs> And yeah, there was this idea, it, this person had obviously learned from experience, the Vikings aren't just going to stop, uh, you know, with how they've been trained and ingrained to, you know, raid and that sort of thing, just because you splash a bit of water on them, which doesn't necessarily mean what you think it means. What's interesting here, generally, like the religious angle is important in the sense that in modern times, we 
I think we tend to overemphasize uh, the yeah. baptism and the conversion aspect of it. Yeah. But first of all, raiding across the border, raiding from them to us, that's just normal early medieval practice. If the Vikings yeah. had the similar, a similar PR machine to the Carolingians, they would probably write about the Franks in the same way that the Franks write about the Vikings. There was raids all over the place the entire time. Yeah. So that, that's one thing we should take into account. The Vikings tend to become overemphasized because the Franks write them that way. They dehumanize them mm. until they humanize them, which happens under Charles the Simple. Um, yeah. But that's a different story. The other thing is that the conversion, it, it's usually presented in the sources that conversion to Christianity equals the raids stop. Because now you're Christian and Christians don't attack each other, which is super ironic that that's usually mentioned <laughs> in the same sources that then without a shred of irony start talking about civil wars and uh, yeah. God knows what. Well, the giant, the giant siege of Paris, what the the Viking leader was a Christian. He even came in and, and showed respect to the bishop as a Christian. So, and that that that's the interesting part. Like with these conversions, what usually came with it, for example, the king of the Franks becomes your godfather. Uh, Charles the Simple, Louis the Pious, they are godfathers to converted Vikings. Um, here we see like there's a clear etymological link between the Latin word for loyalty and for faith, like fides, mm. fidelitas. You, you convert to the faith and with it, you become loyal to the king. You buy into the political system. The guy who ends up besieging Paris may have been a Christian, but he wasn't part of the us that included Paris yeah. as well. So as time progresses, I think we make more of the conversion than we should, and we don't look at the oaths of loyalty as much as we should, which is why I think the Rollo case is so super interesting, because he gets baptized, he gets married to a, a Frankish princess who may or may not have actually existed. We don't know anything about her, except that she's mentioned in Dudo of St. Quentin, who wrote a lot later. Uh, and he swears an oath of loyalty. I mean, he does it by proxy. I don't know if you remember, but he does it by having one of his retainers lift Charles the Simple up by the legs and kissing the foot without having to kneel. But he does oh. end up swearing an oath of loyalty, thereby becoming a vessel of the King of France, becoming part mm. of France in, in, in what you're looking for. And that's that's the important bit for the contemporary yeah. audience, not the baptism. I mean, that's fine, that's good, that's what you should do as a king, make sure that your subjects are all eligible to get to heaven. This is the legacy yeah. of Louis the Pious. You don't want that mm. bad, uh, the bad juju in your, in your kingdom, yeah. You want, don't want that limbo. Yeah, you don't, don't want, want a pagan count in your own kingdom because then when you get to heaven, St. Peter will ask like, what's up with that? So you have to at least <laughs> show that you have made an effort. And that pagan can't come into those pearly gates. So yeah. thereby, also, the guy who failed to convert him can't get through the pearly gates. Mm. This is the Damn. the weight of, 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 of Christianity on politics. But um, regardless of how ridiculous that scene is, it ends the way Dudo of St. Quentin describes it. It ends with, he, he says something of like, and then everyone started laughing. So the scene starts, he talks about the bishops, the Franks, the Northmen, and then Rollo and Charles as separate entities. 
Then you get this whole ridiculous oath swearing scene, with ends, which ends with Charles the Simple uh, falling over. And, and, and then he makes a point of saying, and now everybody left, not just the Northmen, everybody. So the oath has been fulfilled. And of course, Charles the Simple ends up being the butt of the joke, but it's his falling over, his humiliation that leads to a unification between Normandy and France as seen from the perspective of someone writing um, over a century later. Yeah. Mm. So basically, Duno put a, put a laugh track in the Chronicle uh, to make you know that it was... <laughs> I think a better comparison, yes. Like, one of the criticisms that Marvel movies get a lot is that they sort of have mm. these very serious scenes and then there's a joke at the end. Yeah. Like, they sort yeah. of diffuse mm. the situation. Like, oh, let's not get too serious. So there will always be a joke at the end. I think that's closer to what Dudo is trying to accomplish here. He turns a very serious occasion into a memorable one by making it funny. Otherwise, it would just be an oath of loyalty. But now we all know this story. So Dudo is the yeah. is the Joss Whedon of early medieval France. <laughs> Dudo would be closer to um, yeah the Taika like the the Thor. Um, Ragnarok type deal. It's a ridiculous source in many ways, but it's really <laughs> funny because it's memorable, and it's memorable yeah. because it's funny. Charles the Bald is uh, considered a bit of a dark horse in in our competition. He's, I mean, in his in his life, he was compared to Charlemagne a bit because he's obviously named after Charlemagne. Uh, so, do you think he's sort of uh, set up to fail in a way through that comparison? No, I think it, um, well, yes and no, obviously, because of this towering reputation that Charlemagne has. Um, but I, I found Charles the Bald more interesting in a way, because he he seemed to have more complexity to him that the sources hadn't, like, drowned out with all of this sort of saintly talk. <laughs> <laughs> I think, in a way, um, uh, the, this is meant as a compliment, so I hope it comes out this one. But like listening to your summary uh, um, really made me realize how much Charles de Bold is actually trying to be an amalgamation of Charlemagne and Louis the Pious, in the positive sense of what Louis the Pious is trying to accomplish. And so he tries to do both. He tries, he tries to be both those kings at the same time. On a smaller scale, so his his struggle with the Vikings is 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 sold in Charlemagnean terms, and his reform, his cultural activities, because they go they go much further than just religious reforms, but they are cast in sort of a Louis the Pious esque light. And again, going back to these Old Testament examples, uh, you you will have noticed that it's Charles Louis, Charles Louis, Charles Louis. Yeah. But there's also a bit of a David Solomon, David Solomon, David Solomon going on. <laughs> Obviously, Solomon's kids were bad news, so you don't want to be compared with them. <laughs> Understanding the Old Testament is key to understanding Carolingian uh, historiography. Sorry, mm-hmm. I should have maybe started with that. So Charles the Bold definitely knows that he should look at the legacy of his father and his grandfather, look at the commentaries written about them. Charles the Bold must have read Einhard's Vita Caroli. He must have. 
Mm. Uh, and he must have known, like, okay, so this is the ideal. I'm not saying he lived up to that because it's not my job to do that, but he makes an effort and I think he does quite a good job. Like, I fully agree that he is the dark horse in modern summaries. It's do nothing kings, Charlemagne, Louis the Pious just destroys the empire and then <laughs> it's the steady decline ever since. Mm, yeah. But the decline, to the extent that there is one, you cannot fairly say that it starts before the death of Charles the Bull. I think he does an admirable job at at least keeping the West Frankish kingdom being helped by the legacy of his forebears, but also, of course, by the creation of a new common enemy. Like, having the Vikings at your border is a great way of getting all the noses in the same direction. They don't start overthinking. Yes, but I do agree, like, Charles the Bull is, is, is a very interesting, on a smaller scale than the first two, but an interesting case of someone who really has a status quo that he can work with. Pippin, Charlemagne, and Louis all had things they needed to develop. Charles the Bold mm. is the first one who can work within a system. Mm. And then, of course, it falls apart. But by then, we're over a century after Pippin's takeover, so it's not, yeah. it's not yeah. a bad deal. Yeah, they had a good run. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so should we talk a bit about the decline or the the wobbly line that that happens <laughs> after yeah so we so we might do a bit of a speed run i think through the because we don't have time um <laughs> we don't have time to go through them all and and uh and Rutger, you're obviously more of an expert on the early earlier carolingian period but why don't we just do a speed run where i will read out the name of someone we've done an episode on and you can just give a Basic opinion. Okay, so Louis the Stammerer, the son of Charles the Bald. Well, I mean, he, he was very short-lived. I think the, the interesting thing about him is, is is the nickname. You talked about nicknames a lot, also in, in, in the uh, Enchanté yeah. category. I love nicknames. As well you should, because, I mean, we don't know. Maybe maybe Louis the Pious was also stammered. But with Louis, mm. this Louis, it's the name people picked at some point in time. It's yeah. like, this is the nickname we're going to give him. Yeah. And that tells you a lot about how he will have been Same. remembered. I would love to have seen him reign longer. I think he had a lot of potential yeah. and then he just died. It's always the case. <laughs> you think, oh, that one could have been a good one, but then they die. Yeah, th this this was a, a, a theme with the later Merovingians. It will definitely be a theme with the later Carolingians as well. Now, I think yeah. Louis de Stemmerer... Um, What's interesting here, and someone should look at this, is, is his, his upbringing, his youth, like what happened there, rather than his unfulfilled potential. You can, I think, yeah. learn a lot about the culture, the system that I said was developed on a Charles Bold by looking at what people make of Louis de Stammerer in retrospect. Mm. So, yeah, sorry. No, no, it's good, it's good. Robert the Strong, not a king, but he definitely, he came up during the Charles the Bald, Louis the Stammerer sort of period. In a way, may have stolen a lot of Louis the Stammerer's thunder. He rules the territory that Louis the Stammerer is meant to be given as a junior king. I think with Robert the Strong, um, it's it's very tempting to compare him to Charles Martel. I think he's more of the Pippin the Second, like the the... Mm. the predecessor, the one who digs the hole that will become the foundation upon which Robertian power is built. So Yeah, I, th I think we decided to call him Pep in the Middle, that one. Yeah, so Robert is, is kind of in, in that sense. Um, 
he, with him looking at him, you can see the system at work. It's not about mm. possessions. It's not about power per se. It's about like how good are you militarily and how loyal are you, um, mm. but also how good are you at at assessing whether or not you can withdraw your loyalty. And I think Robert mm. is a very good example of someone who really says like, I don't want to be at the top. I want to be yeah. on the second layer of the hierarchy. That's where yeah. the action yeah. is. I think the the Robertians generally are sort of. Uh, have this attitude of like, oh, I don't want to be quite there, but I want, you know, I want the king to do what I say, <laughs> but I don't want to be the king. But I don't want to actually have the title. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but that attitude shows that the system is working. Yeah. In a way. I mean, it's a, it's a paradox of, of medieval politics, but it, it, it is how it mm. works. You don't want to be the one at the top. Where all the eyes are watching. Everyone's watching you be at the top. Yeah. He doesn't want to take on board all of those souls. <laughs> Enough souls already. Um, so next we have Louis the Third and Carloman the Second, who kind of come as a uh, as a set. Um, set. They're the sons of Louis the Stammerer, who jointly rule West Francia briefly. Um, yeah, they die too soon. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> Sums them up. I think again, like there would have been potential to see like the Charlemagne Carloman uh, dynamic play out. A century later, it just didn't happen. Yeah, I mean... In some alternate uh, dimension. Yeah, it's really the opposite situation where the older, stronger brother dies first, and then the younger brother dies soon after that. But interestingly, it goes down as they had a really nice relationship and nothing really went wrong. All these short-lived kings, like short-lived kings, but dynastic continuity shows that the system is working. Other than that, I think... The most important thing about Louis III is his death and uh, bashing his head against a lintel and the fact that it's recorded. Again, yeah. they yeah. could have made it into any other story. Yeah, he's lying there it's bleeding memorable. on the floor and some monk is like, so how shall I record this? And people say, well, write it down like this. So there is yeah. a reason for why his death is recorded in the way it is. And figuring that out... There are many different answers to that, um, but figuring out why his death is recorded that way tells you a lot about what happened after his death. Mm. So then we get to the first example of a lord actually getting up to the first level, who isn't a Carolingian, which is Bozo of Provence. And he wasn't the king of the West Franks, so he didn't really fit our criteria, but we decided to do an episode anyway because he was interesting. I totally forgot we did an episode on him. Yeah, yeah. Do you think that his struggle was also uh, an instance of the system working, of um, like suppressing this upstart that was trying to get it get to that level? It will become an easy answer. Like, yes, it's the system at work. It's the system at work. As long as this dynasty, yeah. as long as he's not fully accepted as a replacement, as a viable replacement yeah. for the Carolingians the system remains intact, but you can see it shaking. There's a very yeah. interesting article by uh, Stuart Early on, amongst others, Bozo, It's called and, and Arnold of uh, Bavaria. It's called the nearly men, like the almost, mm. the ones who uh, almost made it. Um, uh, almost kings. Yes, but the almost, and the point, if I remember, if I can summarize him very briefly, but the point he makes is that they 
almost made it not because their personal failings, but because they couldn't get enough people to yeah, give them support. their loyalty. If I remember correctly, that's also a point you make in the podcast about him. Like he just could have been more successful if he didn't try so hard in a way, if he were just happy with mm-hmm. what he got. But he tried and tried. Yeah, and just... I, think, I think that's what we thought. And I think that's what I, I saw. I, I read in a few places that his biggest mistake was becoming king. It's one of the things, as, as a historian, I'm always bewildered by this, this, this will to power that people seem to have. I'm, I would be... Mm. I know, yeah, I don't understand. Yeah. <laughs> if, if I were king of Provence, I'd be like, fine. <laughs> I, I'm... That's enough. I'm happy. But for some reason, some people just want more. Never happy with what they have. And, and that's, I think that, that's the interesting thing about people like Bozo. Like we think of them as the almost king because they themselves wanted to do that. Whereas we think of Robert the Strong as like a very successful aristocrat because he knew when to stop. But yeah. on paper, if you look at them like without going beyond their death, basically, without looking at their legacy, they're almost the same career-wise. It's just yeah, that trajectory. one of them yeah. is portrayed as wanting more than he, like biting a horn than he could chew the other one. Yeah. Portrayed as being like better at playing the game. And, and also you've got Robert the Strong dying a hero against the Vikings. And you've got that also dying in obscurity, having been defeated. Yeah. 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 I mean, for, for all my talk about religious reforms and support to, of, of monks and, and all that um, salvation stuff, like military prowess is still a huge factor in how you are remembered. Going back to Louis de Pius, like one interesting thing is that his only military success is before he becomes emperor. Like his big military success, yeah. this conquest of Barcelona. He sometimes is almost, or the sources almost make him seem like one of these, I could have been a contender type people. Like I, I was, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I did it, <laughs> but um, yeah, he just... He was doing so well. <laughs> yeah. And and, and yeah. the frustration he must have felt is that he knew that he couldn't go further. Yeah. So in a way, if you like Robert the Strong, you should also like Louis. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Anyway. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so moving on, got Charles the Fat, who we've, we've already talked about, kind of. So he, when Louis, Louis and Carloman died very young, he was a cousin who sort of stepped in. Well, didn't really step in. He just sort of. Everyone just sort of uh, went to him because he was the emperor and he was the last person to have the whole Carolingian Empire more or less united, although that's in scare quotes. <laughs> and yeah, I guess he he doesn't have a good end. He's sort of like if Louis the Pious, when he got deposed, had just given up and rolled over and died, as I'm sure his sons may have wanted him to do. Well, and, and here you see, uh, you, you can compare these two cases. Obviously, Charles V did not have the support to come back, or mm. he had the, the common sense to know, like, this will lead to civil war, because yeah. he, again, would have known the history. Um, he yeah. would have known about the Battle of Fontenoy, which was a huge... Like the way the Battle of Tours of Charles Martel was this big success story of the early Carolingians, the Battle of Fontenoy, there's the ghost of that battle pervades like the the rest of the ninth century. The Carolingians are super afraid of repeating that. So maybe Charles the Bold was just thinking like, well, 
Uh, Charles the Fat, I'm sorry. Maybe he thought, well, <laughs> it, it's fine. We, we don't know. His big problem is he did not have legitimate heirs. So that's when you really see the system shaking at yeah. its core. Because now you have to discuss whether or not someone is a true Carolingian or not. Until him, yeah. there was always one where people were agreed upon. Fall back on. Yeah. And from here on in, this becomes a part of a discussion. Once that discussion starts, it's the beginning of the end. And we get, obviously, Odo elected as the King of West Front. Uh, Francia yeah, at, at this at, point. At, at this point. Um, and Odo then proceeds to die of stress <laughs> slowly. Oh, gosh. <laughs> yeah. Um, he was doing so, he did so well. He's another one who he was doing so well before his reign. And then his reign comes and it's, it's tricky. Yeah, so by my association with Odo, what I th- you mentioned it, he's elected, he's chosen, he, uh, he gets the loyalty of the people. And what I do think is fascinating is, again, because he's not a Carolingian, this is being emphasized. With Pippin, the, the shorts, you can see this as well. It's emphasized that it's not just the Pope's blessing. All the Franks acclaim him. You see this yeah. become a trope. Then it yeah. sort of dies out. It's just, well, you're the son of the king, so you become a king. Yeah. With Odo, this idea suddenly whoop recurs again. Like, no, yeah. he gets the loyalty of the aristocracy and the bishops. All the yeah. Carolingian predecessors would have also had that. But it's just not yeah. mentioned because it's it's not good in the sources to emphasize that because they want to emphasize dynastic continuity as mm. the thing that holds the realm together. Odo of France represents a break in dynastic continuity, so now suddenly the loyalty angle becomes gets played up. Yeah, especially when we've got Charles the Simple running around. Uh. Yeah. Exactly. So they have to justify his kingship as being good for the hierarchy. It's always all the things that you mention. It's always all the things that you see. But the record emphasizes aspects of how you come into power. And yeah. the emphasis is basically sh- shows you what was lacking before that, or what would have mm. otherwise been lacking, if that Again, yeah. I'm not sure if that makes sense. <laughs> and it, it's it, it's very convenient, I think, that nobody really mentions Charles the Simple until Odo becomes king, and then they're sort of casting around for reasons. And, and suddenly yeah, Charles the Simple goes from a child of dubious legitimacy to the only legitimate choice. Yeah. And notice, like, he became the legitimate choice because he would have had support, but his dynastic roots are emphasised more yeah. than the loyalty. But again, it was probably both. It was all the things at once. You cannot be a medieval king if you do not have a huge supporting cast of people propping you up, writing you up, helping you out. Even the lowest scoring kings will have had enough people supporting them to ever make it to the throne. So for risk of becoming a broken record, I'm going to skim through the the last few kings because it really just becomes a seesaw between the Carolingians and the Robertians. And with the Robertians, I sort of include Rudolf, who's from the Bosonid family, but sort of marries into the Robertians. And we end up with a situation where the kings are seemingly always elected, but sometimes they have a sort of Robertian claim of military prowess, and sometimes they have the Carolingian claim of dynastic 
legitimacy. And we've got Hugh the Great, interestingly, who I think a few listeners were asking us, like, why didn't he just become king? Like, they were really unclear about it because his dad had been king, his uncle had been king, and he was the one powerful Robertian after Robert the Strong to refuse at every turn to become king. Or there's obviously a question of, did he refuse? Was he, did he just not get support at the right time? Um, what do you think about that? Well, I, th- I think you summarize it. Uh, here, legacy is more important than anything else. I think, uh, so again, the sources near to him trying to explain this give us an idea about the situation after he, uh, after the dust had settled. But yeah, we, we've gone over that. So <laughs> yeah, no, we, yeah, we have. The real Hugh the Great, to the extent that we can say anything about him, I would say was just a very realist, like astute politician. Of course, he was rich. He yeah. did not need it for like possessions. Um, mm. He had everything to lose and nothing to gain. I think mm. in his case, it's a different from a different decision-making process than Robert the Strong in the sense that Hugh the Great really could see what he could lose mm. if he became king. Because yeah. as long as you're not king, uh, you're responsible for your own possessions. So your borders are smaller or more manageable. The moment you're mm. king, you're responsible for the outer borders of everyone who swears loyalty to you, which puts you in conflict with a much larger cast of characters. Yeah. And I think you was powerful enough to just know that the added bonus of being a king would actually harm him more materially. I'm not sure if this will pan out, if, if I would actually go out and do the research, but if you want to compare Hugh the Great to... Robert the Strong. I think Robert mm. saw the limits of his own power and you saw the problems that would come with more power. And we're going to see Hugh Capet's episode, which will be our next one that we record. Uh, we're going to see almost like he's a reincarnation of Hugh the Great, but he's like, what if the Carolingians had died out and he had to be, be king because he was really the only option or perceived to be the only option? The, the older historiography calls the period you're in now the feudal anarchy. We don't call it that anymore. No. <laughs> I was about to say, was it? <laughs> but it will come off as such. Like, it's unavoidable to, like, there will be a lot of chaos. And because of the discussion, because in the end, what makes a good king in the early medieval sense is the fact that everyone agrees that you need someone to be the highest authority. You need that person for the rest of the system to work. And in the 10th century in France, who that person will be is a subject for discussion. And you don't want to have that discussion because the moment you ask the question, who should be the most powerful, is the moment people are like, maybe it should be me or me. And then you get yeah. Game of Thronesy type deals. If <laughs> the the book or the like, Game Game of Thrones would be a lot more boring if people were just like, ah, eh, yeah, just you, Lannister, you can have it. Like, yeah, we need I think it's fun. we need stability more than we need our family at the top. Um, yeah, that doesn't make for good stories. Um, and maybe as as the final thought on the Carolingian, like the. 
the sources we read are in the business of telling good stories first and facts later. So you will always get like mm. an emphasis on the spectacular bits of storytelling, yeah. uh, the spectacular bits of their reign. You won't, uh, it's something that has been mentioned again, like uh, in your ratings every now and again, it's just uh, the boring kings who do nothing. Um, yeah, we don't know much about them because they're, there's no, nothing spectacular, but... It's no memorable stories. Yes, but if you want to reconsider some of your scores, think about this. If you're a farmer in the 8th century, you want nothing more than a king with no stories. You just want <laughs> someone who does absolutely nothing, leaves things as they are, defends the borders, and that's yeah. it. So the boring yeah. kings are the ones I would want to live under, basically. The sources will always focus on the outliers. And yeah. yeah. I think that's what we found with um, with Lothair, who was one we recently did, was he kept, he like, he couldn't just leave things. He kept meddling with things. And um, his, and his wife, um, Emma, was uh, an imperial princess who was quite ambitious. So he, um, and he, so he was listening to her. He was listening to other people, I'm sure. Uh, and she just got blamed for it all. Uh, but yeah, he kept going into Lotharingia. He kept pestering Hugh Cape. He, he, um, he kept stepping on people's toes. Um, and I, and I think we ultimately decided we don't really want to live under him. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's a very he's he's a great example of of exactly what I was saying. Yeah, you don't be. I don't know what your experience was researching him, but he's one of these people where you look at the sources, you look at the biographies, and you think, just don't like. What are you doing? <laughs> that was exactly my reaction. He, but he wasn't. He wasn't very um like the sources weren't like scathing at all to him or anything. They characterize him as like a oh he was energetic and all of the re- the generic adjectives they use for kings, um, but when you look when you look at the what he's actually doing, you're thinking show don't tell like you're not showing me him, you're not showing me yeah. him doing anything good. Obviously, the sources will not say he's a bad king. They will at most say he's a bad person. What you see very very often, I. I Again, something I should have mentioned earlier, but there are no bad kings. There are just bad advisors. It's a trope throughout medieval historiography. Louis the Pious, perfect king, but he had bad advisors. Charles the Fat, amazing emperor, but his advisors, like the second in command, those were, they were the problem. Um, and that is partially because the texts that we read are in the business of defending the institution Institution first, then the dynasty, and then the person comes third. Actually, then the court, the people who are still alive, who are reading it, because the kings are dead, so you can write about them what you want. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we're gonna I think we're gonna see this all the way up to Louis the Sixteenth, who is the first king who's in a way held accountable, not necessarily fairly, but he's this is this is going way outside. Um but most people in France didn't want him to be executed. That's often like a, a misconception about him. People were doing the old thing of blaming the advisors, but the fact that he was executed was huge because it was suddenly the king's fault. And that was a big shift that 
was the reason that the revolution was so huge. Um, sorry, that was a tangent. <laughs> like he was a victim of the absolutist ideal of, yes, the king is actually personally responsible. Exactly, yeah. But looking at the advisors of rulers, you can still see that today. Let's not go off on tangents on modern politics <laughs> because it's all terrible and everyone's bad. But the yeah. de defenders of bad politicians or of people in power who are not doing a good job have a tendency of blaming the underlings first. And you can see that mm, in the UK yeah. now, like the people who still think that the current prime minister is the right person for the job, they will point their arrows at his entourage. They are the yeah. ones making yeah. mistakes. His entourage and his opponents. Uh, so it's, mm. again, it's still a tactic that's being used. But mm. the comparison is, of course, different because <laughs> these people are still alive and it's an ele there's elections going on rather than yeah. God-given dynastic institutions. Yeah, so And we, we are living in a time where per, uh, uh, personal responsibility is becoming and personal accountability is becoming a big issue. And yet we're also living in a time where people are more aware of systemic problems and the fact that certain things are not one person's fault. So I think that's we're, we're becoming more nuanced, at least some of us, hopefully. Yeah. <laughs> Although I should say more nuanced compared to what I do think. I hope I've shown like the medievals, the Carolingian historiographers, <laughs> Uh, and let's not even go into hagiographical texts and like lesser narratives as they are called, mm -hmm. but they were extremely aware of this, the discrepancy between institution and person, and between mm. what you could actually do as a king in, in a world with no mass communication, with no mass transit. Like what could you actually accomplish if you were in Paris? Mm waiting for reports to arrive from the borders. It's not instant reports. Yeah. So someone like Richard Evrens, Flaudoir, uh, um, uh, uh, the, the author of the Royal Frankish Annals, they would have known that their rulers were dependent on a very rickety information <laughs> infrastructure. And so we should give them a bit of credit for that as well, <laughs> I think. And we should, we should probably thank Louis the Pious for sponsoring lots of monks. To write things down. Yeah, yeah, I, 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 I didn't Maybe even didn't talk about monks that. <laughs> all that much. No, I was just thinking, mm. oh, we forgot to talk about monks, because uh, I know that that is a uh, monastic um, institutions are a big part of uh, what you love, Ruka. Mm. And uh, we didn't get into that much, but um, I would definitely recommend um, for the listener Rutger's interview with Bree from Pontifax on the Pontifax podcast, because you guys get a lot more into what the church was doing um, around the period. They were making cheese. They were, ma they were making cheese. Yeah, that's the other yeah, thing. Yeah, monks, monks liked making cheese. That's the other thing is monks weren't just guys who sat around in buildings. They were producers and they were making part cheese. of the community. Making cheese and writing, writing. Everything we've talked about. Yeah. Eating their cheese while they're writing. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. And nuns, and nuns as well. Yeah, nuns yeah. and monks are responsible for 75% of everything we have talked about. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm, I'm, I don't really mean to talk up Louis the Pious, but let's say if he hadn't done the monastic reform resurgence thing, then he would not know as much about the rest of the ninth century, maybe. It's, a, mm. of course, a huge counterfactual. But yeah, um, in terms of what you're doing in this podcast, like until 
the later Middle Ages, your sources will always be monastic or ecclesiastical, which which is interesting and which you should take into account because they are the ones that give us this idea of this responsibility, not just for the material, but also the spiritual well-being yeah. of the people. And that's um, the big question, of course, is to what extent is that the sources or the reality? Yeah, I think we definitely think about that a lot in Ulala, where we're thinking... Uh, is this, uh, like, what is scandal to, to these people? Uh, we know it's mainly coming from the church perspective, which is the highly, like, moralizing um, sort of perspective. Uh, so that's always something to be wary of, I guess. Um, but at the same time, monks are such a big part of the population. They're a hugely diverse community. So they they are all different. You know? and- and they knew the way the world worked. Like these monks weren't closed off. They said they were, but they really weren't. Maybe uh, on scandal, it's the one category we haven't touched yet. The one thing that that's interesting there is we have a very different idea of what scandal is these days than it was yeah. in the Middle Ages. And um, at the risk of overgeneralizing, but the big difference... Uh, is that nowadays we are very focused on did this actually happen? Is this actually true? Mm. We should do a DNA test. We should do, like, we should yeah. look at CCTV images. The medieval idea of scandalum, of, of scandal, is just the fact that you are being talked about negatively. Mm. And yeah. if, and th- this is why they would usually go for women, because they were easier targets, and they did mm. not command institutional loyalty. They were just... It, it yeah. was all personal. It was always personal with women. Barring yeah. like the general misogyny of the era. <laughs> but they were mm. easy targets yeah. in more ways than one. But being talked about negatively is more important than being talked about truthfully when it comes to determining scandal. If someone mm. puts the rumor out that you are in an incestuous relationship with your uncle or something and people repeat that, then it doesn't matter mm. if it's true anymore. It just means that your reputation is bad enough that people are willing to repeat that. Yeah. So being talked yeah. about in a negative sense is much more important than whether or not it's true. Mm. And I think that's what... I think Eliza was correct on this point back when we did Fredegund in the uh, Merovingian series because I was very... I was I was getting very obsessed with like oh but this is really untrustworthy this is Gregory of Tours like we can't tr- really trust anything he says about this woman who he had a personal um, had personal disagreements with um, and he's the only source that we have but Eliza was just sort of like it's fun let's give her full marks for la la just because of the of the suspicion and because it's a great story. Um, I do yeah. it more on the story than um, the actual, if it's actually true. But I it's, like it but more it's, if it's but, like, oh. But it's all a story at the end of the day, so. Yeah. Sure. But with Gregory of Tours especially, like and with Fredegund, it's a story that was read and copied and recopied. Mm. People read it and thought, mm. oh, we're, let's use some of our precious and very expensive parchment and precious time in the scriptorium to make sure this story will be told in the next generation yeah. as well. And so let's the the power of a good story is 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 much more important mm. than the power of like interesting facts. Oh, yeah. and I have to I have to recommend the Dark Queens by Shelley Puhack. 
Um, I haven't read it yet because it hasn't been published in Australia. But if you're in the UK or I think Europe or America, it's sort of a, uh, it's sort of a, a uh, she's a historian, but it's a sort of very creative um, narrative look at uh, Fredegund and Brunhilde, who was her rival. Um, so, because mm-hmm. I just thought I'd mention that because I haven't plugged it on the podcast yet. And I think it's a great idea because whenever the uh, this period of time becomes spotlighted a bit, I like to sort of throw a light on it because it's a really overlooked period, I think. It's one that doesn't have mm. much weight in our lexicon. Like, you're lucky if somebody knows Charlemagne's name and that's yeah. about it. Actually, anytime someone asks me, oh, what if I should just watch like one episode, what should you, I like, I mean, listen to one episode, what should I listen to? I just always go Fredegund. Yeah. And so go to one. I always say Fredegund. Yeah. And maybe that's different in the Netherlands or, or in Belgium or uh, in France, but that's definitely the case in the English speaking world. Well, I think, yeah, in the Netherlands, the national history, that, oh, that's a completely different uh, discussion, of course. But, um, yeah, it's uh, a lot of it is tied up in what later becomes national history. So in France, more people will know Carolingian kings because they are being wrapped up in French national or nationalist history in a way that in Germany, like the Ottonians and especially the Hohenstaufen, like Barbarossa, are yeah. more well-known than in the Netherlands because Dutch national yeah. history only starts in the 16th century. And obviously there's a lot yeah. happening before that. But it's uh, that, that That's a completely different discussion, like the, the modern yeah. uses of what, what's being taught, what isn't. Well, it's like sometimes you'll mention something that, and someone else who grew up with a different education system will be like, what? What are you talking about? And I'm like, oh, you didn't learn about that? Well, at least at yeah. your, in your, uh, on your half of the globe, everyone will know Adelaide. Uh, and Adelaide the city? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, but nobody knows what who Adelaide... The queen. I don't know which one, but it was after Queen Adelaide. It was the wife of William the Fourth. Yeah. yeah, probably then. Yeah. She's the only but I mean, it, it's an opening. Like the fact that that name exists and you can wonder about it is a way into looking at the history. It, it, it's it's yeah. a it's mm. a leftover of European history that has been brought over yeah. to mm. Australia. I do always like yeah. when a very modern name pops up, and we're like, "Oh, that's uh, that's where that started happening. <laughs> that's where people started naming women Beatrice or whatever." Uh. Whereas then, whereas you have names like Dudo that didn't stand the test of time <laughs> yeah and i'll be like what are you talking about <laughs> i was going to ask the question if you could travel back in time to a one period where would you travel back to oh that's good that's good <laughs> that's one. gonna be my one question <laughs> oh god I, I, sounds like that'd be a hard one for you I, I i'd probably just go back like 25 years and then restart a music career based on songs that have been written later. So you wouldn't go back to like, just to observe, like say you would not affect anything in history, but if you could go back to observe, would you like go back to like Charlemagne time? I I think I'd be mostly interested in just sort of the regular everyday life. How did a council actually go? How did a royal decision-making process actually work? I wouldn't want to be at Charlemagne's coronation, I'd want to be at yeah. the negotiations that preceded yeah. 
It's a very boring answer, but if there's a risk-free way of looking at the Middle Ages... Because <laughs> that's the thing about studying history, yeah. is, is the more you learn, the more you don't want to go back in time. Well, it's like, I always like... It's like, for me, it's like, if I could go back in time, I just want to go back and, like, see where, like, Alexander the Great's body ended up. Or see, like, the Great Library of Alexandria. That'd be so cool. But, but what would knowing where Alexander the Great is buried actually get you? Nothing. I'd just solve a mystery for me, so I'd be happy. Very good. <laughs> you just yeah. get the... One less unknown in the world, okay? You get the cheat code to finding his tomb and becoming famous for it. <laughs> what I would like, I think, is let's say go to the year 988 somewhere in France and just ask a random person, hey, did you know there's a new dynasty? And see how they respond. They even care, because I always tell my students no one cared about this except at the highest level, but I'm... Wondering, maybe sort of a random farmer in Aquitaine would be like, yeah. oh yeah, no, this is important stuff. And the Capetians weren't mm. even, and we'll get into this next episode, but the Capetians weren't even a new dynasty. They were they were just a rebranding of the Robertians who had already been there for a hundred years. So is more important than many people yes. think. Right? And we will get into that. <laughs> mm. They would have thought about that. They would have maybe even thought uh, like have have a meeting, like how shall we do this? Yeah, because it, yeah. the the important thing is they weren't Carolingian, and the Robertians functioned under the Carolingians. So the Capetians mm. needed to be completely new. They didn't yeah. want to be right. an upstart uh, who started under the old system. They represented themselves as a break. Cannot imagine that that wasn't a conscious decision. But yeah. So speaking of the Capetians, this is a segue from Eliza's question into my question: <laughs> uh, Who? Do you think is the king in our next line of kings, so the direct Capetians, that we should most look forward to? <laughs> With, without spoiling too much for Eliza. Just say the name. In, in a way, the importance of storytelling has hopefully been made clear. In the, so there's one story, there's one Capetian king that is partially responsible for why I started studying the Middle Ages. Uh, there's a Dutch uh. Uh, young adult fiction author. She's died a, a couple of years ago, but uh, Thea Beckman. Some might know her from the book Crusade in Jeans, which has been translated into English as well, and which I can highly recommend. But she wrote like historical fiction about like ah. people in Middle Ages or early modern setting um, doing things against the backdrop of actual happenings. And um, I read those religiously when I was a teenager. And one of my favorite books was The Golden Dagger, which is about a French farm boy who joins, who goes on a crusade, meets Noah all kinds of huge adventures. It's a very uh, good, well-researched book. And obviously he's uh, subject to the King of France at the time, who is yeah. uh, Louis the Seventh. Mm. So Louis the yeah. Seventh is my favorite Capetian by virtue content. of him being partially responsible for uh, where I am now, even though I don't research his time. It's interesting how books you read when you're a kid can do that, like make you fall in love with something. Like for me, I remember I loved reading, it was called like The Royal Princess Diaries and each book was about like a different um, princess within history and that made me love history. Yeah, well, and Louis VII in this book as well because one of the protagonists is like uh, a maid who works in the palace <clears throat> and she gets um, privy oh. to the conflict he had with his wife 
who is of course oh. the actual reason why Louis the Seventh is the most important, uh, most interesting. I think we can spoil who his wife is. Mm. <laughs> his wife is Eleanor of Aquitaine, Eliza. Actually, she was one of the Princess Diary books. No, there was a book on it in that series. One of them was about her. That's how I knew about her growing up. I mean, as, as historians, we're trained to be very skeptical about like big person history. Uh, but like Charlemagne, yeah. I think Eleanor of Aquitaine is one of these people that are just so fascinating. Mm. And I mean, technically, she was never queen of France. So, but if she doesn't get a half episode, I will immediately stop listening forever. <laughs> well, I'm like, no. Anytime a woman can have an episode, we're getting that. It's like, well, it's like Catherine de Medici. I'm like, we have to do an episode on her or else I'll die. I really hesitated to cover her because the Rex Factor podcast has already covered her and rated her and everything. Um, but so... we can do a different version. Come on, it's her. <laughs> you love her. I'm very hesitant. You love the name Eleanor. But okay? I'm definitely, I'm definitely thinking about it. Okay. Well, but but there you have it. Louis the Seventh, by virtue of his. Do we really want to lose a viewer? <laughs> God, Ben. If if anyone wants to listen to that episode now, go to X Factor, because they've probably done it better than we could do it. (laughs) Well, you have some time to work on it, but... Although it's in the context of her being Queen of England. Yeah, because his wife is a genuinely interesting person, so... Yeah. Yeah. Something to look forward to. We've had a few kings already like that who are mainly interesting because of their wife. (laughs) Um, Mm. It happens. It happens. But we could just do it from the hurt, like, before she went to England, if we can. I feel like not as much as, cut, like, knowing about her when she was actually in France, like... She's technically still in France for most of it, because <laughs> Aquitaine is in France. Yeah. <laughs> it's also a legacy of national uh, uh, historiography later. I mean, uh, yeah. English language yeah. scholarship will focus more on her role as Queen of England and, and the Angela yeah. Empire and her sons, who are, of course, a big deal. Uh, in yeah. French scholarship, there will be a lot on her, more relatively more on her Aquitanian credentials. And of course, Crusader scholarship has to deal with her at some point. Okay, so your answer to who's your favorite Capetian was Louis the Seventh, but actually Eleanor of Aquitaine. Yeah, well, but there's a personal reason and a historical reason. The personal reason yeah. is the book and the historical reason is his wife. Yeah. Makes sense. Makes sense. That's a totally valid answer. I thought you were going to say um, uh, Philip II. Uh, I thought that's the direction you were going when you said Crusades, but... Yeah, I should um, have mentioned which Crusade. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, there, there's, there's interesting um, Capetians. I mean, as, as we discussed per email, like, they're still alive. They're still uh, Louis the Twentieth. Yes. Um, mm, he's yeah. technically a Capetian, but he doesn't quite count i think yeah i don't think he's he's prominent in french politics yeah and i'm not sure if he's listening but he's not my favorite capetian i'm sorry um, yeah. yeah sorry he's Louis. like i'll unfriend you now <laughs> damn it we lost a listen yeah. <laughs> um so did you want to plug anything my book in which i make the case for louis de pius is uh open access through amsterdam university press so people can read mm-hmm. that i try to get most of my stuff uh, open access on the internet. Yeah. 
So um, you can, can Google it. my name and see what comes up or Google Scholar my name. <laughs> we can link it in the podcast description. Yeah. So. I'm, I'm working yeah. a lot on like exactly what we've been talking about. So uh, the next yeah. few articles will be these overviews of what is reform, what is religion and mm. politics together. And then I'm looking forward to not doing Carolingian history for a while. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Sometimes to you need a on. break from things. I will, I will never fully be rid of them. And they're, they will forever be super interesting. Haunting you for the rest of your life. I, I'm definitely <laughs> looking forward to moving on. But at the same time, I wanted to do this to sort of put a nice hat on the Carolingians because they've been fun. And I think <laughs> yeah. Louis V was a bit of a, a weird note to end on. <laughs> So um, that's going to be au revoir from me. Goodbye from me. And uh, veel plezier en tot ziens from me. Mm-hmm.